Welcome once again to Christ in Prophecy. You know, two weeks ago, we embarked on a series to dive into the Feasts of Israel. In our first program in that series, we briefly touched on all the feasts in sequence. Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Shavuot or Pentecost, Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. This week, we are going to combine the Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits, not only because they overlap so seamlessly, but because they convey the same prophetic trait manifest in Jesus Christ our perfect Passover lamb who fulfills all the feasts. I'm joined today by a good friend of Lamb and Lion Ministries who has been on our program before and has become a fairly regular contributor to our Lamplighter magazine, David Bowen. David is a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona, and for a number of years he's also been a professor at a local college and a passionate student and teacher of Bible prophecy. Welcome back, David, to Christ in Prophecy. I always say thank you and welcome, but this time I just want to say shalom. Shalom, y'all. Yeah, well, you're in Texas, of course. And we also have another guest with us today. That's my good friend Richard Hill, a gifted Jewish preacher and teacher, a Messianic Jew. And so, Richard, welcome back as our guest expert on Christ in Prophecy. And I got to say shalom as well. <laughs> well, we'll teach y'all to say shalom, y'all. So, First thing we want to start out with is we're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's define what we mean when we say leaven. Well, leaven actually means sin in the Bible. And so this is an interesting uh, feast because you are bringing uh, sin into the situation here, or you're actually you're taking it out. So when we say unleavened bread, it's bread that was made without leaven, representing removing the sin from your life. And quite literally, Jewish uh, tradition is to look for all the yeast or the leaven in your home and remove it, kind of symbolic of that effort to uh, remove sin from our and lives. That's exactly what the Jewish people do on the first day of the feast. You're pulling out all products that have leaven in it. So anything that has bread, uh, well, bread has leaven in it, and anything else uh, needs to be taken out of the house. You have to clean out the house. It's very symbolic of getting the sin out of your house right. as well. So for a Gentile reference, we might think of eating saltines uh, for unleavened bread, but really it's a matzah bread. And yet this particular feast also points backward to a particular episode in Israel's history uh, when they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise, right? right. It's interesting too, because uh, when Moses went to, to the mountaintop, we all think he just got the Ten Commandments. But really the question was, how can a sinful man go before a holy God and worship? And up there he got the priesthood and he got the sacrifice system and he got the festival time. So God told Moses, this is how, where, when you are going to worship me. And we, we need to understand how and when we can come before the Lord being sinful as we are. So on that note, Richard, tell us about the, the scriptural roots to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and really what God was trying to instill in his people. Well, it's found in the book of Exodus chapter 12, verse 15 through 20, specifically talking about this Feast of Unleavened Bread. So seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now you can understand God is very serious about this feast and of course all the feasts. 
But he says, cut off from Israel. That means they're going to die. The Hebrew word there is karat. Karat. And you, if you did not follow what God said, well, he was going to take you. And wow. that's a serious situation, isn't it? You think that they were actually successful in removing the leaven? I'm sure they were very uh, determined. But how, applying this, can we be truly successful on our own to remove sin? I mean, it, it seems like a, a hopeless task. There's always some microscopic element of leaven left in the home, and obviously we can't complete that yes. task. It's just, it's the symbolic effort that he's instilling. Well, you know, even the Orthodox today, they go to the such extremes to get all the leaven out, like rice. You know, rice has just a tiny microscopic aspect of leaven in it, but they get it all out. You don't necessarily have to do that. Uh, well, it does show how important sin is. We, we, we get so casual about how we live, and it's just, it's no big deal. God's a loving God. Yeah. But sin is, it's important to understand. He'll wink at our sins, right? Yeah, well, that's what people think. How does God look upon it? That's what we oh, need to remember. That's a yes. good point. And in verse 16, and on the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy, holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. And so this day is actually not a Shabbat day as many proclaim it to be. But it is a holy day. It's a holy day of worship and also a day of sacrifice in the temple and in the tabernacle once they get to that place. Because they didn't have the tabernacle or they didn't have the temple at this right. point. And so, but they are allowed to do a little bit of work. They are allowed to, be, to prepare and eat the food. Verse 17, you shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. There's a couple of things in this verse, uh, Tim. Yes. On the very day I brought your hosts out of Egypt. So on this day, celebrating Feast of Unleavened Bread, but they are escaping. They're getting out of the land of sin, out of the land of slavery. But I think it's important to note in this chapter, they are still in Egypt. They have not yet departed when God institutes this particular feast. So he's telling them, I want you to start celebrating this every year while you're still in bondage, if you will, or still in Egypt. Right. And they have to take on faith that what he says is going to come to pass. And yet there's also an urgency to their expectation, which is one of the reasons also, I think, that they weren't even supposed to wait for the bread to rise. And that points to me to the urgency we should sense. Exactly. God said it. It's going to happen. It's as good as done, even it though it hasn't happened yet. The rapture's coming, period, dot. And so I need to be urgent about my expectancy. And urgency, urgency about our sin in our lives as well, getting yes. rid of it immediately. Yes. And, and the key point, too, is it's faith you're talking about. So even in the Old Testament, it's faith and urgency, which everything in the Old Testament, which I enjoy, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ eventually even the festival times and the feast. I mean, this is the resurrection of Christ and the burial of Christ as we get yeah, to the festival times. We're getting to that. Yes. Just give us a minute. Okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so carry on. We're not done here yet. Verse 18, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Now you notice on the 14th day of the month, what was the feast that we said started on the 14th day? That was Passover. That's Passover. So that night is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they are connected. They're intertwined to connected. And so we're supposed to be eating matzah as well as the Passover meal. We eat matzah with that meal. So tell us a little bit about matzah in particular. I mean, this bland little cracker. My daughter loves them. She eats them because she just thinks they're a great snack. But, but they are somewhat tasteless if you don't have other things to go with them. And yet even that, that humble cracker... 
I think is terribly symbolic or tremendously, terrifically, not terribly, mm -hmm. symbolic of our Messiah. Tell us a little exactly. bit about the cracker. And I like to joke uh, during our Passover and just tell everybody it kind of tastes like cardboard. So, mm. And it does. You know. <laughs> but let's turn to Isaiah chapter okay. 53. And we'll see the connection okay. with the matzah piece and, of course, our Messiah. Very good. And I like to say Yeshua. Yes. Using the Hebrew name for Jesus. In verse 5. It speaks of the Messiah. What's going to happen to the Messiah? But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Mm -hmm. The chastening for our peace or our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging or by his stripes we are healed. And so we see what happens with the Messiah. He was pierced through. He was striped for our sins. Mm -hmm. And the matzah bread, it's pierced through. It has holes in it. The matzo bread has been striped. You see the stripes as we put a piece on the screen for you to view. There are stripes on it. There are In the cooking process, there are holes. And so this is the bread that was symbolic of Jesus' body to be broken for us, to be striped, to be pierced through so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. It's amazing to me, Richard, and I want you to touch on this because the symbology is so obvious to me, that the bread itself, and, and if you read the rabbinical requirements, it has to be pierced, it has to be striped. There, there are certain specifications even for this cracker. Right. And yet so many are, are blinded to the symbolic reference it has to Yeshua who was pierced and who was striped on our behalf. Why those, those blinders on so many hearts even today? Well, actually, guys, uh, many Jewish people and the rabbis even in Israel are starting to believe. And so the blinders are coming off. But what Lord. it takes is faith. It takes faith, and you really got to trust Jesus. And for Jewish people, there's a lot of road uh, blocks, and, unfortunately. And number one is persecution. You'll ah. get persecuted by your own mm. family members, your own congregations. Mm. We had a rabbi at CGF Ministries, and he got thrown out of Israel because of his faith in Jesus. Well, I mentioned earlier how the feast was instituted in Exodus chapter 12 as they are preparing to leave Egypt. And so this feast harkens all the way back to that great deliverance, which is, is such a tradition and cultural uh, marker for the Jewish people to this day, celebrated by oftentimes even the, the secular Jews, uh, especially Passover. And so the, the feast itself, if I wasn't clear before, was instituted while they were in Egypt, getting ready to depart. But I think you touch on something very important, and, and this is where we turn to first fruits. And mm -hmm. so what was meant for the Jewish people has now extended beyond. So, so let's transition to a conversation about the first fruits and how these two feasts blend together. Mm -hmm. So where does that bring us in passages uh, that you'll hearken to in the historic record? Now let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. All right, now to Leviticus. Now this is... Uh... Interesting because first fruits comes the next day on the Jewish calendar. Right. Rabbis have decided that that's the third day of Passover week. So you have Passover, then you have unleavened bread, which goes on for seven days total, and then you have the next day is going to be Feast of First Fruits. And Leviticus chapter 23, that is the summary chapter of all seven feasts that God gave to Israel, plus the Shabbat or the Sabbath. And you have to note, the Sabbath is the most important out of all of them. And the rabbis would tell you this as well, because it comes first in this chapter. 
Sabbath is the most important. So all Sabbaths need to be kept and then all the feasts as well. So in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9 through 11, and I'm just going to cover 9 through 11 and 14. Okay. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, when you enter the land, which I'm going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. And the sheaf is the omer and it's cut grain. That's what it means. So, and later on, we're going to see the counting of the omer, counting of the days that come to the next feast. But omer is, omer is cut grain. And we're talking about the barley harvest here. Mm. Mm. It's the barley harvest. And that's the poor man's wheat, right. Right. as they call right. it. Yeah. But it still tastes good. Not as good as wheat, though. Okay. Next verse. So they're bringing in the first fruits. Now, the first fruits is a section off of, uh, to the east of the temple. And they would actually tie them up, tie up the, the barley, and they would cut it. to go out and cut it. And so what are you going to do? You have to, you have to parch it. You've got to heat it up. You've got to cook it. Then you've got to mill it down into fine flour and then present it before the Lord. Mm. And that's what they're doing on the Feast of First Fruits in the temple in tabernacle times. So the priest is taking that bowl of fine flour and lifting it up and praising the Lord. It's a wave offering, so it's a thanksgiving mm. offering unto God. And they're thanking God for Him being what? Sovereign. Yes. And providing for all of their needs. So He lifts it up and He to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, and saying, Lord, you are providing, providing for our needs. Thank you so much. And they would even say, blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who has provided for us, and, and list off various things, but in this case, grain from the earth. And it's what important are they looking to see the, to? the effort made to that, too. When you explain that, I mean, that took a lot of effort to be able to bring that to God. When you say, I'm bringing the first fruit, I'm bringing my best, but it's going to take me some time and some effort to do it. Yes. And it's the same for us, too, isn't it? Yes. As believers of Yeshua, of Jesus, we're to bring the first fruits yes. of everything, of not only our tithe, but also our lives as well. Yes. Give Him the best. Mm. And we're really good at bringing God leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it takes a different heart and a different mind to really say, God, you get my best, you get the first of everything. And that's important to understand the, the But what are the Jewish people looking forward to? This is the first harvest. Looking for all the blessing for the rest of the harvest of the year as well. Yes. And that's exactly what their priest is doing. Lord, we're looking forward to the future as well, the future harvests. So really, it's, it's a statement of faith that we're going to take the first, and instead of hoarding it or, or gobbling it down, we're going to present it to God as a demonstration of our faith that you will continue to provide for us Amen. through this year. I mean, this is an agrarian society. So if there's a drought or a plague on the crops, it's devastating. Most of our folks in the modern society are not living on a farm. They, they are not as connected to the harvest uh, as these people would have been. But to give God that very first and to say, all right, God, here, here it is, and I trust you. It almost harkens back to Abraham, who God said, give me your first, and Abraham did, trusting that he would provide, that he would, you know, resurrect uh, his son Isaac or, or provide and giving over as an a act of absolute faith. Amen. And Paul, who's the ultimate Jew in 1 Corinthians, says Jesus Christ is our, is our first fruit. There you go. So how so, did he fulfill this role yeah. of first fruits? Well, he just took the scripture right out of my mouth. So. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Verse 20. And that's really the main scripture. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of the resurrection. Mm. So when that priest is waving that bowl of flour before the Lord, 
This is the resurrection, the rising up of Jesus as our Messiah, rising up, his being resurrected. Presented before the Lord as an offering to the Lord, but really as a demonstration, those who put our faith in him for God's provision that is now going to flow into our lives. It comes full circle. Amen. And then you go down to verse 23 in the same chapter, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Mm. So, so Jesus is the promise of the resurrection, but the future resurrection is going to come all of us as all we are us. being resurrected in amazing. the rapture. Yeah, how you started in Exodus and you're taking us to 1 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. how, through the whole, all of Scripture, God has it all planned out and worked out, but everything is pointing and looking towards the coming of Christ. Now, i got to also ask this. When we talk about first fruits, because it harkens to another first that God uh, says He has ordained, and that is that the message, the, the good news, mm. is for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. Gentile. And so here i got a Jew and a Gentile, <laughs> and so this good news came to the Jew first, but God's plan was for it to be extended to the Gentiles to all right. be grafted in. So how does this particular feast hearken to that glorious good news? Oh, my. In the Passover and unleavened bread and the Feast of First Fruits, the Gentiles were included. Did you know that the Egyptians actually, well, some of them left with the Jewish yes. people. Yes. They actually got in their houses, the blood was put over their doorposts, and then they were actually able to leave with them. Mm. Yes. And so... I believe God has always grafted the Gentiles in, even from the beginning. Yes. And we're going to see that as we go through all these other feasts as well. That's correct. The Gentiles, God's heart is always for the Gentiles as well as the Jew. Well, David, from a, a Gentile pastor perspective, we got a Messianic sure, pastor, sure. but from yeah. a Gentile pastor perspective, how glorious is that good news as you share it with your flock and with people as you teach and preach? I might have the Jesus opposite Christ. side because it's harder for the Gentile pastors to teach the Old Testament to their congregation because we want to be New Testament. But when God made the covenant with Abraham, the Gentiles were included because Israel were to be a blessing for the entire world. And that hasn't been completely fulfilled yet, but it will be. Israel's, God's not done with Israel yet. But yeah, so from That's the right. Gentile side, it's wonderful to see how God started from the very beginning and he's going to finish what he started. Mm. So this begs the question, really, uh, if, if a Jewish person is watching, we, we would proclaim this message is for you because you are uh, the, the first fruit, if you will, in a sense, in that the gospel came to the Jew first. And, yes. and we want to bring in many sheaves and many believers. Yes. But if you're a Gentile believer, God also has the same promise of opportunity and blessing for you. So the question is this, does God play favorites if he, it is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile? God does not play favorites. No. Okay. We're so all equal before the Lord. We are all equal before the Lord. He's impartial, so. as Romans chapter 2 tells us. So what would you say to a Gentile viewer as a Jew when we declare God does not play favorites and the gospel is for all? Well, I would just say, hey, you need to believe. You need to believe in Jesus just like the Jewish people do as well and place your trust in him and get saved. Amen, amen. So how did they, uh, the rabbis determine, I mean, between the Sadducean and the Pharisaic, just to tee you up, that uh, this would fall on the third day of the sequence of Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, the, the Pharisaic understanding is what's taken over today. And this is what you see in the calendar. So it's on the third day. Uh, but the Sadducean understanding was the day after the Shabbat, meaning the Shabbat was a Saturday, uh, Saturday Shabbat, and that they would then celebrate this feast on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the Pharisaic was just on the third day. So Passover can land any time during the during the week. 
Okay. The 14th of Nisan can be any day. So Monday, a Sabbath, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Yeah. It's not just a Saturday. When you read in Scripture about a Sabbath day or a high right. Sabbath, as the New Testament refers, that can be any day of the week. But this particular day we know is on one day of the week. And which Saturday, is that? Yes. Verse 11. And he shall wave the sheep before... Oh, this is Leviticus chapter 23, verse 11. And he shall wave the sheep before the Lord for you to be accepted. So this is the priest, right, in the temple or in the tabernacle, to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So it's the day after the Saturday Sabbath. Right. Sabbath. That's what I believe, as the Sadduceans believe. But the Pharisaics are the ones that won out over time. But mm. It's fascinating that you're saying it's the third day because that third day does have a day of significance. That third day is a day of, of climax and divine activity. I often looking forward, again, being a Gentile, I look forward and I ask the question, why was Jesus in the tomb three days? Why not an hour? Why not a week? He's going to resurrect. That's the key. But why three days? It's because, going back to the Old Testament, in the festival times, the third day is a day of significance. I think it's also I, instructive. You just mentioned the Sadducean versus the Pharisaic view. And let's just say that these various rabbis in Jesus' mm. day and age, all the way down to today, they've studied, they, they try to, to discern, but sometimes they don't get everything right. Dare say, gentlemen, uh, we don't get everything right. Mm. The only thing that is most important is that we get one thing right, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Yes, I want to learn, I want to discern, I want to gain understanding, which is why we're here today talking about the Feast of Israel, but we may not fully understand until we stand before the throne of God and He gives us complete understanding. We're just in awe of how He wove everything together. Perfectly. But we have to get that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. All these symbols and references are pointing to, and He's come on our behalf to be that first fruit sacrifice to God. And you wonder why the Jewish people didn't see it, why the rabbis didn't see it when Jesus came. Uh, you, you do to this day. And so you mentioned already that the, the blinders seem to be lifting, and that's a reason for us to rejoice. Give us some other testimony about how Jewish people are coming to realize that Jesus is the fulfillment, Yeshua, of well, the ancient prophecies. Even in our ministry in Las Vegas, my wife and I, we have led 12 Jewish people to the mm. Lord this past year. Praise, praise the Lord. Now, praise the Lord, but one, uh, about 10 of them are actually got saved at a funeral. I did a, a Messianic Jewish funeral, and... You know, Jewish people were there that came in from California, came in from, uh, well, from Las Vegas and heard the good news message presented to them at a funeral. Can you imagine that? At a funeral. And many received Jesus at, as, their, as their Lord and Savior at that time. Well, you know what? Uh, it was Jesus' funeral that led to the life-giving blood, if you will, that has now uh, grafted Gentiles like David yes. and me into the, uh, the righteous branch, but also with our Jewish brothers. In Christ. Did you know that End Time Bible Prophecy focuses on Israel? And thus, if you want to understand what is going on in the world today and what is going to happen in the immediate future, you need to know what the Bible says about the Jewish people and their nation. Dr. Reagan's book, Israel and Bible Prophecy, Past, Present, and Future, presents a sweeping overview of what the Bible says about Israel and the Jewish people in the end times. The book looks first at four end-time prophecies fulfilled before the beginning of the 20th century, specifically the dispersion of the Jewish people worldwide, their persecution wherever they went, their miraculous preservation, and the desolation of their land. Then Dr. Reagan shifts his attention to the seven prophecies that were fulfilled in whole or in part during the 20th century. 
the regathering of the Jews to their homeland, the reestablishment of the state of Israel, the revival of the Hebrew language, the reclamation of the land of Israel, the resurgence of the Israeli military, the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem, and the refocusing of world politics on Israel. Finally, Dr. Reagan concludes the book by focusing on the end-time prophecies yet to be fulfilled among the Jewish people. The book can be yours for a gift of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen or place your order through our website at lamblion.com. Again, place your order either by calling the number you see on the screen or access our website at lamblion.com. The Feast of Unleavened Bread clearly points to our sinless Savior, whose body was broken like a piece of matzah bread. The Feast of First Fruits also points to Him, the first fruit of the resurrection. But others have been grafted into the life-giving righteous branch foretold in Jeremiah 23.5. They are also bearing fruit for the kingdom as they await the resurrection that God has promised will come. Let's hear the testimony of Meg Price, a Kentucky native who along with her husband Dan answered God's call to proclaim good news to the Jews and the Druze living in Israel. Tim asked Dan and me to share a little bit about what it's like living as Gentiles in the land of Israel, the land of Jesus' birth, and then also with regard to the biblical feasts, maybe which one of those or ones of those have particular significance for us. There is a feast that for me carries quite a bit of significance as we talk about the Feast of First Fruits. Now we, there are a lot of farmers here, so whether we're talking about as farmers bringing in that first crop, the first fruits in the early part of the year, or whether we're talking about as believers, because Dan and I are working, sharing the gospel with the Druze who live in the Golan Heights of Northern Israel. They are as equally hard-hearted as the Jews here in the land. So, at times the work is very slow and seems unfruitful. So the Feast of First Fruits is significant for me because as we toil, as we labor among in the hard soil of the Druze hearts, I'm reminded of what it says on a note about the Feast of First Fruits in the Complete Jewish Study Bible that we have. And it says, the Feast of First Fruits in the, that feast, God's faithfulness, providing the early wheat harvest, increases faith for an abundant fall harvest. Giving thanks for present provision leads to faith for future fruit. So as we look at Jesus, who was the first fruit of the resurrection, we have that hope as believers. And as we work, the current provision, God's faithfulness and provision, increases our faith for the future fruit to come among the Druze. You know, Dan and Meg Price are such an exemplar to me, both of them, because at an age when most people are hunkering down to enjoy their grandchildren, they pulled up roots to follow Jesus Christ to the land of Israel to share the good news. And I enjoy taking all of our pilgrimage groups to meet them when we go to Israel. 
It gets exciting. I mean, I'm excited now about the first fruits and just scattering more seeds and watching other fruit bearers rise up. Amen, amen. Well, Richard, I want to thank you too for joining us today for this episode on both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits and for opening our eyes to the depth and richness of what God had planned even in these feasts. What a blessing it was for me to be able to teach about Jesus being found in these feasts. Amen. Well, folks, that's our show for today. Until next week, we pray that you will join us in looking up and being watchful for the bread that has come down from heaven. The perfect first fruit of the resurrection is coming again soon. Amen.